0: hello and i'm hmm, gonna start over with the tag. <laughs> oh, oh, already off to a great start does
1: Marin tell you how many times on average it takes me to start off an episode of love yeah
0: well she doesn't have to because as, the, as your editor <laughs> okay. i can hear all your flubs
1: <laughs> yeah uh, the answer is 12 <laughs> 12 <laughs> times on average
0: Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, uh, and this week I got incredibly burned in the stock market in Animal Crossing. Um, oh no, guess you got did a, you
1: buy
0: it. I bought at 98 and I sold at 42. Oh, no. I never, 98 was it... my Sunday price and I never got above it all week long. It just went down and down and down. Real yeah,
1: that's what turn exchange exists for
0: yeah i thought about it and then just didn't so on the one hand i've no one to blame but myself on the other hand 42 i didn't know it would go that low oh, when, yeah. when i hit 51 i'm like well this is the lowest it could possibly go it has to turn around on saturday um so no
1: your peak prices are gonna be tuesday through thursday i think hmm. the only time i've ever seen a high price on saturday was once when kaylee waltzed in with Andrew or her husband Andrew's prices being at like over 600 oh, on Lord. a Saturday night. And it was like, what is happening? <laughs> that never
0: happens. I, I was doubly furious because when I went and bought more turnips today, it was back up at 98. It's like, you, you.
1: See, I have solved this by deciding that I don't care about this stock
0: <laughs> <laughs> For most of April and May, I didn't. Or whenever it started. So probably like May. I didn't, but I've, like, started getting back into it, by which I mean I'm playing on Sundays in the morning when Daisy Mae's around. Sure. Because um, for the longest time I just wasn't, and so I missed it. Uh, anyway, joining me, as always, is the other voice you've already heard, my fellow
1: co-host. What's up? I'm Martha Sullivan, young adult librarian and uh, hard-bitten Cthulhu investigator. Ooh. I'm playing Call of Cthulhu on Xbox and it is I don't know if it's a good game. Um I've at least gotten past the kind of beginning like interlude. Although I failed a strength check in it, which was not a thing that I knew you could do in a video <laughs> game.
0: <laughs> so like it sounds like it's based on a D20 system.
1: It's it's based on I believe it's based on the card game Ooh, huh. It's an LCG that's made by Fantasy Flight Games, where you play investigators. Um, there are a couple of different scenarios and like different elder gods and cult members that you can encounter. Um, the setup of the video game is that you are a tw- you are a 1920s private investigator who takes a case, um, investigating the death of a rich guy, um, a rich guy's daughter, who he comes to you and says, my daughter was an artist, she painted some weird stuff, her house burned down with her husband and her child in it, I think that there was foul play involved. Mm-hmm. So you have to go to the um, tiny island off the coast of Boston, uh, which is an old whaling town, um, and full of salty dogs and bootleggers, and investigate the... Uh, potentially wrongful deaths of this woman and her family.
0: And I'm sure the fall play ends up being, like, yogg Sogoth or whatever.
1: I I mean, I am only a couple hours in. I don't know yet. <laughs> well, and, is- and you're stuck,
0: you're stuck under a, a bookcase or something, apparently, right now. What? Because C- he failed his strength check.
1: Oh, I assume my no, bookcase fell
0: trying- on you and it's game over because you can't get up.
1: I was trying to break into a warehouse. Mm. And I, I solved a puzzle and then tried to open a great and failed a strength check, and then um, the bootlegger lady came and kicked me in the nuts and uh, (laughs) knocked me out for a while. So now I owe her a favor. Hooray. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, like I said, don't know quite yet if it's a good game. Um, I've just been feeling the kind of, I've been feeling a video game sort of itch. Mm-hmm. Recently, um, and I didn't feel like playing Animal Crossing today for the first time in <laughs> three months. Yeah, right. Um. <laughs> uh,
0: well. Uh. Today we are going to be talking about Afrofuturism, uh, another great form of, esca- of escapism, or you know, not escapism, maybe hard grappling of topics, ism. Um. But before we do that only fair that we uh share with you what is stuck in our heads uh, basically whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about so um martha go ahead and lead us off give us a verse so... drop some knowledge
1: <laughs> you have looked at the show notes <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i like every other basic b in the united states um got very excited when you
0: mean right thinking american well, I mean, okay. so
1: Hamilton dropped on Disney Plus, which I was very excited about. I did have the chance to see it when it was in theaters several years ago. Um, my seats were very bad. They were in obstructed viewing. So I mm. basically could not see the second level of the theater. Um, so I was really excited to see original cast. Um, I'm a big fan of Hamilton. The film itself, A+. Mm-hmm. I thought it was beautiful uh i am a little upset at how people have decided that it is cool to hate hamilton and like if you don't like it fine that's your prerogative um but i have been very bothered by the fact that we do not have um the nuance we we apparently are not able to engage in the nuance required to be mad at Hamilton. Like, e- there e- are... Everything there is either are, 100
0: or zero, and there's no yes. in between.
1: And there are very real criticisms that you can leverage at this show. I will never be a person who claims that something that I love is perfect. Um, but also... <laughs> I don't think it is a piece of media that you can just say, it's terrible, Lynn manuel Miranda is terrible, no one should watch it. Like, my my sort of biannual tweet is, you can love a piece of media and still engage critically with it, and mm-hmm. I think that people need to be doing that. Um... All of which is to say that the thing that I am actually all about this week is the Hamilton mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: this might be the <laughs> longest preamble to a stuck in our head ever, and I'm all here for it because uh, it's a good discussion to be having.
1: Yeah, and I like I said. I I think that there are things to engage critically with it. Um, it certainly does not make any effort. Hamilton the musical, not the mixtape, certainly does not make any effort to kind of discuss the realities of the founding fathers um, and their poor treatment of indigenous people. Um, the, the fact that of way, most of them were
0: slave owners.
1: Right. The way it engages with slavery is very kind of, superficial Mm -hmm. there is a very weird moment where thomas jefferson has a sexy little mini dance with um sally Mm -hmm. the slave that he had a
0: at least one child with
1: yeah i was gonna say relationship and that is the wrong word Mm -hmm. um and like there are there are moments of kind of lip service to slavery but As a whole, it doesn't really, like, that's not what it's here to engage with, and I think that that is a criticism you can talk about, but on the whole, like, this is a piece of media, this is a wildly popular piece of media that was made by people of color, with people of color, and I think, like, for people of color, like, in addition to being widely consumable, um, and to simply write it off as, like, oh, this piece of media has problems. Well, everything has problems. Like, we right. need a better dialogue for stuff.
0: Right. Um, also, like, it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, but, like, this play dropped in 20—like, back in when Obama was president, this play dropped 2016. in— 2016. 2016, and, like, and it had been workshopped off-Broadway for years before that. I mean, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, 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 did the very first, uh, like, public— unveiling of this idea at a White House event back in, like, 2010 or something. So, like, the world now is very different than the world in 2016 or the world in 2014 or the world in 2010.
1: So, yeah, I am not here for people who think that it's suddenly cool to hate Hamilton. Like, if you honestly didn't enjoy it, then you should have muted all mentions of it back in 2016 when everyone was losing their minds about it. But yeah, I listened to the Hamilton mixtape while I was running today. And it is Mm -hmm. something that I, it took me a couple of tries to kind of get into. Because the first time that I listened to it, I was expecting it to be a much more straightforward kind of up and down cover album. And Mm -hmm. that's not what it is or what it's doing. Um, And I I just think that I am better able to appreciate it now.
0: Um, My thoughts on the Hamilton mixtape are the Ashanti J. Rule. Version of uh, what song is that? Helpless uh, is incredible, um, uh-huh. which makes total sense because Helpless was modeled off on uh, modeled off the Shantae and J Rule songs. Um, and the Chance and Francis version of Dear Theodosia is 100% better than the actual version of that song and also brings me to tears basically every time. Uh, Chance also recorded it shortly after the birth of his daughter, I think, so like you know.
1: Which one did Kelly Clarkson do?
0: Pulling up Hamilton mixtape <laughs> in my Apple music. Um It's Quiet Uptown.
1: Yeah. Oh. That one is beautiful.
0: I gotta say, uh I didn't actively cry watching Hamilton when it's Quiet Uptown happen like that entire sequence, but um was pretty close. <laughs>
1: No the when I like fully burst into tears we've gotten way off topic but anyway I fully burst into tears in that last in the um who lives who dies who tells your story at the end mm. when um uh, Philippa Sue is uh a... yeah when she kind of breaks the fourth wall and sees the audience that has been watching her the whole time and has her like gasp moment
0: yeah
1: uh yeah felt all kinds of ways yeah. about that one yeah
0: uh, gonna be honest, we we both when that happened, we we're just sort of like, what was that about? Uh, but I like your reading of breaking the fourth wall and seeing the uh, it the, the is not, history.
1: That was not an original thought of mine. That mm-hmm. was an analysis that I saw somebody else had on Twitter. But I really like it because, like, um, there's some debate over whether lynn at that point is playing himself or is playing Hamilton. Hmm. And either way, I think it works for him to like lead her to the front of the stage and kind of show her for me it is very clear that she then gets to see the audience who has been listening and was a witness not just to Hamilton's story but to her story as well
0: yeah yeah the the fact that it, it ends the plans with with both Hamilton and Burr going into darkness and it like it becoming her story is way clearer when you see it versus if you're just hearing it
1: Yes, there was a lot, and again, we are so fully <laughs> off, that, off topic. Uh, Welcome to Did
0: um, You D- Do Your Homework? A Hamilton podcast.
1: Yes, um, because my viewing experience was so less than stellar. Um, there was like getting to watch it this kind of cl- this clearly. Yes, uh, I felt like I could track a lot of the thematic stuff that lynn is doing better. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of see the ways that he loops different themes throughout the show um i felt like i had a better grasp over what the scope of the performance was
0: right and you you get like the lingering looks and like the various like the things that you're not really necessarily catching if you're in the nosebleed section with a pillar directly like blocking half of the the stage yeah um which yeah similar viewing experience to you uh, uh you know i did not see the you know the right hand side of the stage very well
1: yeah we couldn't see the entire upper balcony Ooh, woof. yeah
0: we i i could not see the right the house right um balcony or anything underneath the like the stairs uh, and that whole area so yeah yeah well <laughs> super cool that they filmed it yes uh, and with the original cast uh, i my twitter was incredibly thirsty for david diggs on Friday. and
1: and then when i watched
0: it i'm like yeah no i see that i can understand that
1: yeah i don't know that chris jackson is the best part of that show but he might be my favorite part of that show
0: is he philip
1: no he plays George washington
0: oh he's great
1: yes he Um, also plays the dad in moana
0: (laughs) oh cool
1: Yeah, one last time is my favorite song in that show
0: yeah, no, One Last Time definitely is the, like, it's One Last Time and it's Quiet Uptown or What Moved Me to Tears because they're both, like, perfect. And then you drop just a large chunk of Washington's actual writings in the middle of it, and there I am.
1: I, yes, I...
0: Um, this is not what's stuck in my head, but some genius-slash-maniac did the entire first act of Hamilton in Muppets, uh, with, like, with Kermit as Hamilton, of course, and, and Piggy as Eliza, um here's
1: the thing about that no
0: no let me finish um he had henrietta the chicken as angelica so all of angelica's chuff stuff is just like um and then he had Fozzie as lafayette and during the guns and ships bit is just like no i can't do this i need an understudy it's too fast
1: first of all put some respect on angelica's no, no, name no, no, no.
0: i love angelica uh, they also had beaker playing um uh, uh Lawrence. um you know john Lawrence. so that's like a plus all around for everyone
1: yeah i listened to some of it i would have appreciated it more if like the actual muppets had done it
0: sure you can tell it's the, not quite
1: the gonzo impression was not great
0: yes i had to look up I was like, I assume that's Gonzo, but I'm not certain that's Gonzo.
1: We have spent way too much time (laughs) talking about (laughs) that. What are you all about, Pete? All right, so... um, What's stuck in your head?
0: Yeah, this actually, like, both of our homeworks fit very well into our theme. Um, Not about Afrofuturism, but about uh, Afrohistoryism, I guess you could say. Um... I recently watched De Five Bloods, uh, Spike Lee's 2020 joint, uh, with Netflix, and it's incredible. It's it all it is instantly in my list of top five movies that I've seen in the year 2020. Um, classifying it that way because obviously 2020 is a weird year for movies coming out. Um It is uh the story of five uh African-American Vietnam vets who uh well, four vets, five young African-Americans in Vietnam uh, who buried a bunch of gold that they found. Um, one of them died uh, in Nam, and then, um, you know, now in the year 2019, uh, the remaining four are going back to go find the gold and, and try to bring it back, and it is incredible. Um, Chadwick Boseman, Norm Lewis, uh, the guy who plays um, Lester Freeman from The Wire, and the guy who plays... Uh, uh it's clay davis from the wire um are all in it and those are all the people i i recognized a uh, great cast across the board um jean renault isn't it with, with his beard shaved for some reason um who's what who's he in the movie or as a person No,
1: like at all i don't know um,
0: the name he is uh uh he is in leon the professional and oh, he's, nice. he's leon the professional got it yeah um and a bunch of other stuff, but, uh, yeah, no, um, it's an astonishing piece of film work. They changed the aspect ratio and the film quality whenever they go back to Vietnam, but more importantly, Chadwick Boseman plays the guy who doesn't make it out, um, and- Spoilers! Well, well, this is not that much of a spoiler. Uh, that's very much in the, like, early on. But, like, they have the, like, Norm Lewis and, and all the other old guys are just playing themselves, but as teenagers, interacting with young Chadwick, like, Chadwick Boseman, and they're all supposed to be like 20. And so the fact that it's all these old guys and him really kind of shows um, you know, they're not doing any de-aging or anything. So it's it's very much a, a stylistic choice to be like here's all the, you know these are the guys who survived this is the guy who didn't make it out he's perpetually young they've aged. Um, and you know, it being Spike Lee it's, it's a very radical film. Um, it's graphic, it's gory, but it's Truly fantastic. Um, my one caveat, uh, and this is a, a a gripe that both of us have: it's two and a half hours long. That's oh, too long. Could like Spike could have cut it down to two fifteen. Um, it'd be hard to get it down to two, but like two fifteen would have been totally doable.
1: I almost got into a Facebook fight with a friend of my parents the other day <laughs> um, because they posted something of they posted about watching Five bloods i don't remember how the comparison came up um but somebody like what it turned into was people talking about spike lee versus quentin tarantino and i was mm. like i will take spike lee over tarantino any day of the week that's also like, a,
0: a weird they're doing such different things i feel like i i i don't like the idea of comparing them
1: I think the question was sorta of was comparing over-the-top depictions of violence. Oh. And my point was, well, at least with Spike Lee, he's saying something.
0: Yeah, he has a reason for it. Tarantino, it's just Grand Guggenol. I've never been able to say that word. Um
1: It's fetishistic. Yeah. In a yeah. way that I don't think Spike Lee is
0: Right. There um, is horrific violence in the Five Bloods, but also it's a vietnam movie and it's a movie about grappling with um lived trauma and generational trauma um yeah
1: you don't have a gratuitous scene of a white dude setting a woman on fire in a pool just kind of because right question mark well
0: because she's a manson murderer and it's cathartic um, i was gonna say i
1: have a head i have a whole ted talk prepared on his <laughs> removal of manson himself in once upon a time in hollywood as a force but that's not what we're here to talk about today
0: no uh in fact based on these two um sucking our heads we could basically just end the podcast there we're we're at about an hour at this point oh my god <laughs> you have you have to cut you have to edit that oh time. no we're leaving it in this is gonna be a long one we're going long oh my god. <laughs> it's all good conversation we gotta leave it in um but recognizing it's gone long at this point we're gonna take a break we're gonna come back talk about afrofuturism which is actually the point of this episode so uh you've stuck with us so far stick around Welcome back. So this week we're talking about Afrofuturism. Uh, Very fun and exciting topic. We gave you a smorgasbord of homework to do, um, including some academic grounding to just give us like a framework to discuss this idea. Uh, That was the article uh, "Black to the Future: Interviews with Samuel R. Delaney, Greg Tate, and Tricia Ross" uh, by Mark DeRay, which came out in uh, was written in 1993 and which coined the term Afrofuturism Uh, and was a fascinating article because it was an in-depth cultural criticism of stuff happening in 1993 when I was five. Uh, so a lot of what it was talking about was... Um, it, it makes me wonder what reading cultural critiques of, of culture coming up now is going to look like in 20, 30 years. Um, also, just the lenses they used to discuss culture was very different. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. That was just your... We assume you've done that reading to allow us to all talk more informedly about our actual homeworks, which were uh, the um, Octavia Butler book Dawn, the first book in the uh, G-Zeno, Lilith Brood, and or Xenogenesis uh, series. Uh, the Arc Android by uh, Janelle Monet, her first studio album. And Brown Girl Begins, a 2017 film by Sharon Lewis. Um, like I said, we're spending most of our time talking about those homeworks, so We're just going to leave the Black to the Future article sort of on the back burner, unless, Martha, you have any particular comments you want to bring up about that.
1: No, I just had two pull quotes that I wanted us to kind of keep in mind as we are proceeding with our discussion. Um, The first is just the straight up definition of what we mean when we say uh Mm. what we mean by afrofuturism when we say it
0: thank you for uh reading the note i'd written to myself uh that we should define afrofuturism before we begin this conversation
1: (laughs) (laughs) the first quote i want to um I want to make sure that we are thinking about is that Afrofuturism is defined as speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture and, more generally, African-American signification that appropriates images of technology and a prosthetically enhanced future. In layman's terms... And, and at
0: this point, we can probably say twenty and 21st century technoculture.
1: Yes. Um, So what we're really talking about is speculative fiction that centers an African-American POV and themes that are important to the African-American community um, and utilizes kind of the set dressings of sci-fi and other speculative fiction um, to deal very specifically with um, the concerns of that community.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah.
1: The other one, and also, quote, like,
0: uh, sorry, I, I should also say um, it's frequently defined in terms of uh, uh, the African diaspora rather than simply African American. So we'll probably use the term like black uh, more than African American because there's also a strong like British African angle as well.
1: That's a really good point. Um, yes. Uh, the other pull quote that I wanted to speak out loud at the top of the episode so that we're just kind of thinking about it. Is, um, can a community whose past has been deliberately rubbed out and whose energies have subsequently been consumed by the search for legible traces in history imagine possible futures? Furthermore, isn't the unreal estate of the future already owned by the technocrats, futurologists, streamliners, and set designers white to the man who have engineered our collective fantasies? So we're also talking about a community carving out a space for them that has traditionally, both literarily and cinematically, been dominated by a white perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. And the idea of like a community whose, whose past and whose history has been actively and violently erased. Um, yes. And, and what it means to look to the future. Mm, fireworks, fun. Uh, what it means to look to the future when there has been an uh, a systematic, intentional effort to erase the past. Yes. Yeah, so.
1: Agreed. <laughs> big,
0: <laughs> big ideas. Uh, we're going to do this one chronologically. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, the uh, book Dawn by Octavia Butler, which, Martha, you ostensibly assigned but kind of at my request
1: um also because i heard that you had never read it before and i said what i also this will not stand
0: octavia butler has been on my reading list for 10 years and thanks to this podcast i've finally gotten gotten around to reading it um i'm so glad that we both had the same reaction to reading it
1: um so i have read them before um i read so okay first of all Dawn is a novel that was originally published in 1987. It is the first in a trilogy um, that were originally collected under the umbrella of um, the title Xenogenesis. It has also been published as a collection of three novels under the title Lilith's Brood. Which I think Um, is
0: the common title these days.
1: Yeah, the three novels individually are called Dawn, Adulthood Rites, and Imago. And the story of them is about a woman named Lilith who wakes up after the Earth is basically bombed into oblivion by humanity. Uh, she wakes up in a strange place, doesn't know where she is, uh, quickly finds out that um, a, an alien race called the Oankali have basically intervened in humanity's best efforts to destroy themselves. So they have descended in an effort to not only save humanity, but continue their own biological imperative of interbreeding with another alien species to introduce a genetic diversity and uh, variation into their own species. Uh, Lilith is recruited by the Owen Kali as kind of an ambassador to them. Uh, basically she is given the directive of teaching and awakening other humans uh, to prepare them for their reintroduction to Earth um and their incorporation into Owen Kali society, uh, which goes about as well for her as you can imagine. Hmm. Um the Follow up novel, which Pete and I both leaped immediately into upon finishing Dawn, uh, is about um, one of her sons. Uh, and then I'm not going to spoil what the third one is about for Pete because it is sort of the most weird and most interesting point of view Ooh. of the trilogy.
0: Interesting. Great. That gives yeah. me double incentive to finish uh, Adulthood Rights.
1: Um, but yeah, so Octavia Butler is juggling with a lot of themes in don many of which were not kind of immediately apparent to me as a teenager but as an adult I'm reading this going oh this is a book about slavery
0: mm-hmm. actually yeah
1: um the basically what is being offered to humanity is the opportunity to survive at the behest of a species that considers themselves in every way to be superior to humanity
0: mhm And the price of that is a total lack of, um, species autonomy in a way. Um, they, they will, the future of humanity is not as humans, but as human Owen Kali hybrids, basically.
1: And in order to ensure this, the Owen Kali have literally sterilized all of humanity. So the only, um, the only opportunity... That humans have for procreating and continuing their species is through the Owen Kali. The flip side to that is we are led to believe, or we are given to understand that without the Owen Kali intervention, humanity would have just gone extinct. So the kind of big question of the series is is it worth it for humans to continue in whatever form, if it is not strictly as people. Like is that a worthwhile existence? And you get you get people on both sides of that. Like you get people who are willing to live with the own kali and interbreed and continue the species. They are taken care of. Like they are allowed the chance to cultivate their own life alongside this alien race. Um the own kali also make a big deal out of the fact that they won't force anybody. To,
0: yeah, they're uh, they they feel very like
1: to live with them they feel very magnanimous they, they they feel
0: very like lost cause idea of the uh antebellum south like oh they were good slave owners like they didn't make anyone do like it was all for the be- like it was all for the best you know these... like you can
1: you can leave right. you can go like they don't stop anybody who leaves but also if you leave you don't get to have children mhm um You don't get access to the um, kind of medicinal overwatch of the Owen Colley. Like, your life is not as good. And I did have a problem with kind of the overwhelming heteronormativity, I guess, of these books. I mean, the book
0: did come out in 1987.
1: I know, and distilling the whole purpose of humanity down to the act of procreation was weird for me.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. Um, there were also a lot of moments of... It, like, vague, in-vogue at the time, men are from Mars, women are from Venus psychological traits... But also, I totally believe that, like, Lilith should not, like, awaken a man first. That may, like, no, don't. Like, men are violent. <laughs> um sure. uh, Like, and, and in this situation would be prone to, like, sexual assault. Like, that, it both scanned as correct, but also in the back of my mind, I'm just like, this feels very 1987 gender dynamics. Um,
1: and we should say that the, the Owen Kali are...
0: Or a trisexual species.
1: trisexual species, yeah. Mm -hmm. They have um, what we understand to be male and female, and then also a third gender, who is sort of the key to their reproduction um, and genetic... uh, Like, all of their genetic tricks happen through that third gender. Although the gender... The third gender being is predominantly coded as male in the books.
0: It's... Like, they use it as the pronoun, but I'm with you that it always feels more masculine than feminine. And, and that that could be just nikonj who is the 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 being that we are most like familiar exposed. with, yeah, exposed to. Uh could just be more male than female on that like spectrum for that third gender being, but like even the other um main Uloi, whose name I'm totally forgetting, the one that Lilith doesn't like, um also still feels like kind of masculine. Mhm. So yeah, I'm I'm with you that it's like it's it's neither male nor female, but also it's kind of male. Lots of uh penetrating uh language being used. Yeah. Mhm. <laughs> like hard to think of it as a third gender when it's doing a lot of penetrating.
1: Um but yes, tell me about your experience reading this book for the first time.
0: I loved it um obviously as as exempli- uh, exemplified by the fact that uh, we both got this book off hoopla and the hoopla version had a like oh first glimpse at the next book and i was immediately like great i'm gonna keep turning the pages on book two until i can't anymore and have to get that book um i am curious how i would have thought about this book reading it as a high schooler uh, i don't know if i would rock it in the same way as i am now uh, and I'm I'm very glad that I'm reading it now with a lot going on in the back of my head. Um, it's intense. There's a lot going on. That being said, I would totally advocate that high schoolers and middle schoolers um, who are, you know, precocious should read this. Um,
1: I will tell you, reading it as a high schooler, the main impression that I had as a 16-year-old was, damn, this book is horny.
0: <laughs> and it's not even that horny.
1: It's pretty horny. It, I mean, horny. it's horny,
0: but it's not that horny. Um, uh, there's a lot going on here with with body uh body autonomy. Um, there were a lot of moments where what the oonoki or Owenkali were... I'm really glad I have the wiki page in front of me right now, by the way, so I can like <laughs> pronounce these words. um a lot that the Kali is doing to Lilith is really problematic and and raises questions, and I think it's supposed to um Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of vague like eh, mostly in the later half of the book like well you said no but your body said yes so it's fine uh from from uh which felt really not great when Um, he
1: first tells lilith that he won't impregnate her without asking and then impregnates her without asking
0: because she was ready for it her body was ready for it which is like oh um, but I feel like that's the point like it's that is like it is supposed to make you feel that way because um i I don't remember if we were talking about this before we started recording the epi- before the episode. um, but like this is a slave narrative, basically, okay. um, and the idea that like Lilith has no bodily autonomy because she is in a um a position of like of servitude to. Um, the Owen Kali, even though it doesn't feel like it it feels like the most benign and you know um, open of possible slave experiences but it's still one where she doesn't have control over her own body and what is more integral to you know the human experience the lived experience and having control over your body
1: well um, we also see the Owen Kali do things like destroy all remnants of human civilization yeah deny lilith writing materials so that she can't write things down like all of these little markers of things that are so indicative of a colonialist mentality mm-hmm. like saying oh you don't need markers of your previous life because your new one is going to be better
0: right right um, we, we, we are coming with civilization
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i do think that lilith is a very good POV character, because she is, it's it's not like she happily goes along with what they are saying. Like, she, she struggles with it throughout all three books.
0: Yeah. I, I will um, say she, she treads the line very nicely of she fights against it, but also acquiesces enough to move the plot along, um because she could easily be like a um This is gonna sound bad so i'm trying to phrase it correctly like she could easily be somebody who is so strong in her you know selfhood that she like refuses to play ball at which point you just don't have a book
1: well and i think the point is supposed to be that she is navigating um like an impossible keeping, situation yeah she's she's navigating an impossible situation like one of the things i appreciate about octavia butler is that she very rarely writes a book that has very clear-cut heroes and villains in Mm -hmm. it like i do think there's an argument to be made that the owen Kali are doing what they consider to be the best for humanity like from their point of view if they had not stepped in to intercede humans would have just died off and isn't any existence better than no existence
0: right everyone is the hero of their own story
1: you know their their flaw comes in where they are so assured of their own righteousness that they cannot conceive of a universe in which they would be wrong, or in which they would misinterpret another species' like main survival directives.
0: There was a lot going on in the first book that I appreciated, where the Owen College just clearly mis, misunderstood or just sort of did not understand humanity, and I yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed that because I'm all for um, first contact stories that are about like the. The psyches are so different, so alien, that, like, there's no way to, you know, the oncologist are like, yeah, we'll just wake up 40 of you and it'll be fine. Um,
1: Well, And they're so convinced that, like, oh, we've done this enough times before that we know what the best way to do it is, even when they have Lilith practically screaming at them.
0: Like, this is a bad way to do it.
1: You've never done this with us before. Right.
0: Right. And they're like, but we understand your genetics. We understand what makes you tick. And it's like, yeah, but also you don't. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Any other things specifically about Dawn before we move on to our next homework?
1: Um. I like that it's basically a space opera. Like it. It's it's more localized. Mm -hmm. Like it it takes place on one
0: big old spaceship.
1: yeah, one giant spaceship and on Earth, but as the books go on, you get introduced to more of like the wider universe that Octavia Butler has kind of envisioned. Um and this I think is definitely an example of one of those things like one of those themes and things that is normally the purview of white people that is in this form unapologetically black.
0: Yeah. Um do you she think She was
1: also I just think it is imp- important to mention that octavia butler was the first um the first african or she was the first science fiction writer to receive a macarthur fellowship
0: oh shoot
1: and period full stop period full stop that that as a black woman yeah um has received or received both the hugo and nebula awards which again is not is frequently won by white men because the world of sci-fi is predominantly yeah. inhabited by white uh, So,
0: so are are you saying that we should change the Campbell Awards to the uh, the Butler Awards? Yes. Yeah, I'm. Yes. I'm I, I will co-sign that uh, petition.
1: <laughs> um, but no, she was she was popular in a genre that has never been. She she is popular and wide read in a genre that has both typically been niche and also is not commonly.
0: A place for either women or people of color,
1: right? Like she was mainstream in a way that even like typical sci-fi authors are not. Mm-hmm. Like her her work clearly has a universal resonance.
0: And N.K. Um, Jemisin is very much like following, not say following in her footsteps, but like like feels like the modern day Octavia Butler.
1: I would even argue that I I don't think N.K. Jemisin has quite reached the mainstream reach. That Octavia hmm. Butler did yet. Sure, I think. and I, I
0: don't know Butler's reach back when she was at her height.
1: Yeah, I, I think that it is. I, I think Jemison will. I don't think we've seen Jemison's peak yet. Sure. I think that she's still
0: fair. Uh, and it, it fully known that this podcast stands for Jemison. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent, real hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think this? I would say series, but let's go with book because I've only read the first book all the way through. Would make a good show. Um, I was kind of going back and forth on it, and I kind of don't feel like I could easily see pitching this as like an HBO show, but I'm not sure if it would actually scan that well in TV. I again.
1: don't know. I don't know that anybody would be willing to make the visuals as weird as they need to be. Mm. Like I, I get hung up on the fact that I. Even with, like, HBO money, yeah, I think the Owen Kali would look bad as a visualization.
0: That's a good point, because they have to be everywhere. Like, you would spend just so much money every single episode just making your sets and characters. Because the first two-thirds of this would just be one human and a lot of CGI. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point.
1: It would need to look good.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah and also think about the when you get into the second book and start dealing with human constructs <laughs> yeah like yeah. the visuals would be so important and i don't know that we could
0: that's that's a good point and and as a uh, as a principal i am not a fan of child actors so the idea of child aliens uh, seems yeah. like not great for me <laughs> You know, there's always the outliers. Sometimes actors are great, but as a as a general overall, uh, yeah.
1: Tell us about Janelle Monae, Pete.
0: So I assigned uh, The Arc Android, Janelle Monae's first studio album back in 2010. Uh, it is technically part two and three of her Metropolis series, which I would argue is probably still ongoing um, because I watched the... Music film, forty minute music film that she put out for Dirty Computer, and that looks like it's hitting the exact same beats and ideas as the Arc Android is. Um, It's a hip hop opera, hip hop opera, if you would. um, That is ostensibly about uh, an Arc Android, possibly a time traveling Arc Android named Cindy Mayweather, a messianic android sent back in time to free the citizens of Metropolis from the Great Divide. A secret society that uses time travel to suppress freedom and love. Uh, That is according to uh, Monet's own description of the album, and it takes a deep read to get there. Uh, But it's also just an awesome, fun, and funky album. Um, I have a very strong memory of first hearing about this album and hearing the first song from it. It was from a uh, uh, NPR All Songs Considered podcast back in 2010. Uh, They were raving about it, played a song, and I'm like, well, I gotta get in on this. So. Uh, I feel like I was into Janelle Monet before it was cool. Um, if you were into this, uh, I would thoroughly recommend her, her next two albums, um, obviously Dirty Computer, uh, and then also The Electric Lady. The Electric Lady is the most actively storytelling of the three. Um, it's got, like, sketches and stuff that sort of, like, drive home the we're living in a future android metropolis world. Um, Martha, I know that you have listened to Dirty Computer, I'm not sure how thoroughly, but I also know that this was your first uh, introduction to Janelle Monet's earlier stuff.
1: So, I told you before we started recording that Tightrope is one of my very favorite Janelle Monet songs, mm-hmm. which is on this album. The first time I heard that song was as a cover on the sixth season of Glee. Interesting yes
0: the, the glee kids doing tightrope. interesting
1: yes well one of them yeah it was just one girl singing um but no i i really enjoyed listening to this album i loved all of the different musical elements that janelle Monet wraps in i've listened to dirty computer and i've watched the visual um the music videos for the songs that have them on that one did
0: you watch them as music videos or did you watch like her 45 minute movie thing
1: i watched them as music videos because that was how i could find them
0: cool there's almost no difference except for there's some like interconnecting sinew tissue between them all
1: um i was a little disappointed that this particular album did not have a visual component because i actually think that her work i mean her work is brilliant yeah um but i feel like i quote unquote get it better when i have a visual to kind of follow along with like i had to um with this one i had to listen to it and then like go back and read all the lyrics to understand what was happening and then i also had to read some like reviews of the album yeah <laughs> to right what's happening um so,
0: uh, some, some of the songs do have music videos but they're not in the they're more like twenty ten music videos with like a vague, uh, you know, effer futurist visual iconography, rather than and like you know big boy jumping in, um, rather than like telling a story, mm. in the same way. Um,
1: yeah, my my favorite musical bits were the ones that were very kind of like fifties cocktail loungy type music, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was not a sound that I expected um from this particular album Ooh, i also yeah. love the album cover art weirdly
0: i mean like this is a gorgeous looking album cover i think it's her best um, it is
1: so heavily reminiscent of the 1920s metropolis movie
0: which is what she based this, like i mean the the city that she is you know it's, it's the metropolis suite which yeah it tells you everything you need to know about it
1: Yeah, I was, I was glad that that was at least a piece of, um, that at least that was a reference that I understood. So I had a bit of a touchstone going into the album. Mm -hmm. Um, why did you pick this one?
0: Um, I didn't, so I, I wanted to pick music because a huge, like, Afrofuturism is, as we will get to, generally less well represented in cinema. And it is well-represented in books in the in certain genre, uh, Butler and all the rest, but it's very strongly represented in music. And, uh, like, uh, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic and Sun Ra are both, like, prominent Afro-futurist. Um They use a lot of sci-fi imagery in both their albums and lyrics and stuff. But I'm just not that well-versed in either P-Funk or Sun Ra, and I just don't, like... They're great when they come on, but it's not what I go to. Janelle Monae is my musical Afrofuturist, period, full stop. Um, sure. Like I said, I've been in her since 2010, and everything is great. Um, I didn't want to do Dirty Computer because it felt too recent, and I knew that you had listened to it. Sure. Um, yeah. And at the time that I signed this, like, Electric Lady is my least favorite of her three albums. No shade on that. Uh, it's just, like, I prefer this one and, and Dirty Computer more. Um, in hindsight, for a strong Afrofuturist take, I should have gone with Electric Lady, because that is probably the strongest storytelling, but I think the songs here are stronger and are just more fun, so I kind of wanted to just expose you to that. Um, also, like, as her first studio album, like, she had an EP out before this, um, Metropolis, Sweet One, parentheses, The Chase, close parentheses, um... But, like, this is actually the, her first real serious album and, like, the first beginning of this overarching Cindy Mayweather, you know, android saga idea that she's carried through with all of her work. Um, so this felt like a good place to start. Um, also, and this is incredibly tangential, but uh, there was a thing when Dirty Computer came out, which was shortly after Prince died. Uh, someone was like, Genomee on Arcandroid is I love Prince. Genome on Electric Lady is I got Prince to play on one of my songs, because she did. Um <laughs> and, and actually you cannot listen to that song on Spotify because Prince. Um, another reason I didn't choose Electric Lady. Uh Genome on Dirty Computer, I am Prince.
1: <laughs> so the the kind of through line to all of her albums, like if you if you look at her albums, each as a, like, pearl in the same strand. Mm-hmm. The story she's telling is one of an android-seeking autonomy, correct?
0: Uh, autonomy and also freedom for the other androids. Um, okay. Her, her android counterpart, Cindy Mayweather, her nomda android, um, is a messianic android who's trying to free the other androids from the society that they live in, uh, which mm-hmm. oppresses androids and, and you know... And has enslaved them. So it is like it it speaks to afrofuturist concepts like in music afrofuturism is frequently like very funky uh again thinking P-Funk and Sun Ra but also Janelle Monet. her music is very funky um which is fantastic. Uh and as you said incorporating in this a lot of like 50s kind of sounds which is neat. Um but conceptually it's dealing a lot with the idea of the android as the other and the idea uh, again of bodily autonomy like if, like, can you do what you want to do? Um, are you treated with respect in your society? Are you a full-fledged member of society, or are you merely a, a robot, um, literally slave, to, you know, do whatever the, the, uh, the, the people with power want you to do? Um, so she, she is positioning herself as a, uh, a chain-breaker, a mediator between the haves and have-nots, um, and, and that sort of, like, scans throughout her entire uh discography um and, and with the series through line for her of like love as as that way to break the chains um it's a lot of the idea of like the oppressive state slash society is suppressing love and emo and, and other positive emotions so she is here to bring that um whether it is like actual love or platonic love or just a a joy de uh kind of like um dancing love uh the song when we come alive, I still have Hamilton mixtape uh, pulled up in my music. <laughs> um, like I, I really feel like the song um, "Come Alive: The War of the Roses" uh, is sort of about that. Like the idea of, like this is like we're we're coming alive not in a physical sense, but like this is when we we can live, um, just by like grooving to the music.
1: On a purely sonorous note, ha ha ha. Uh-huh. Um. The same way that Octavia Butler is working in a medium that is predominantly utilized by white men, I enjoyed hearing um Monet play with styles of music that are predominantly utilized by white people. Mm. Um, like not just the aforementioned fifties lounge stuff, but like the electronica stuff and like cabaret and folk music threads that she has in in some of the songs i am like it is impossible for me to clearly differentiate one song to another when i have listened to an album as a whole so i apologize for not giving specific examples um but the fact that she works in so many mediums like not just um not just that funk but also in like everything she kind of skips through and plays with was also just really lovely to hear.
0: Right. Like, this is an incredibly funky album, but also you have all the other elements like, being woven in as well because it's not just a funky album. hmm Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, shall we skip forward to our next one? I think so. We're running so long.
0: (laughs) I I think so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the other, I
1: I was a cheater this episode and picked two different media because I I did want to make sure that we were um, representing something from like all three of our kind of quote unquote main um, media outlets. If I'd been thinking at all, I would have asked if you wanted to squeeze a comic in here too. I mean,
0: Tana nehisi Coates' Black Panther uh, trade paperback number one is great.
1: True. There's also an anthology that is entirely um, sci-fi stories. Well, it's... We'll talk about it later. (laughs) It's called FTL, y'all. It's an anthology Hmm. about what happens if somebody learns how to make a faster-than-light travel engine for $200. How that Democratizes space travel. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: We don't have to talk about that right now. That's what we are cool. talking <laughs> about right now is the 2017 movie Brown Girl Begins, uh, which is the story of Tijin, who is a girl who lives in the walled off island suburb of Toronto called The Burn in the year 2049. Um, and her journey to reawakening. Um, The Caribbean spirits that her family has dealt with before to save uh, her family and the people on this island. Um, Her mother was initially meant to be the priestess of Papa Legba, but died during the ceremony to um, inhabit her with his powers. And so now Tijin has to deal with her fear of going through the same thing And dying, or um, trying to find an alternate way to save uh, the people on this island. Um, There are subplots in there about uh, the people that she is helping to heal being addicted to a drug called Buff, um, and how they are being recruited by a gang leader's right hand person named Crack, um, and her efforts to kind of mediate between the spirits and physical people. Um, It was hard to find an accessible Afrofuturistic film that was not Black Panther.
0: (laughs) Which, to be honest, we both would have happily rewatched, but we figured we should uh, expand the net a little
1: bit. Yes. And I'm not sorry that we watched this movie. I think that um I I mentioned to Pete before we started recording that my the biggest imp- or the biggest visual impression that I had with it um it reminded me very strongly of in a version of a midsummer night's dream that I saw a couple of years ago that was done in afrofuturistic aesthetic hmm. Um, but this this movie actually very i I would not have been surprised to see this film done as a stage show. I think it could be a very effective play. Um, I think that the filmmaker did a really good job with the resources that they had, realizing their vision. Um I should say it was written and directed by Sharon Lewis. Uh, it stars Mona Treore as Tigene, uh, Nigel Shawn Williams, Shakura Siday um and emmanuel Kabongo
0: got a bunch of money from the Canadian Film Board or and the Toronto Film Board so that tells you what sort of budget it's working with
1: yeah um but i i i enjoyed it i actually about halfway through i wished that we had picked fast color as our film version and by way i mean me um <laughs> just because i had seen that one before and i think it is also an excellent movie and is also a superhero movie um but we're talking about brown girl begins right mm-hmm. now um i thought that some of the metaphors were a little on the nose uh
0: the right hand woman of the main gang leader is named crack and whenever they're talking about crack ravaging our community i just sort of was like fine okay
1: i will tell you it took me about halfway through the movie to realize that crack was a person
0: Mm-hmm. right and like <laughs> like crack has a whip so whoosh, crack it like it totally makes sense in comic book language why her name is Crack but also ugh, come on um also but like I, she has a whip very like good visual storytelling here
1: um but i did think that the movie uh, the the large kind of overarching theme that the movie is dealing with is um there's a lot about class and poverty in here but i think at its core it's about the relationship that tijin has with her familial ancestors and how she mediates between her family history and her modern situation mm-hmm. so she she has her identity like this hmm. uh, struggle in her identity between her like ancestral expectation that she should just be willing to accept the habitation of papa legba within her versus her kind of more modern like attempt to go her own way and establish her own identity outside of that
0: interesting so I, I wrote a note to myself that I did not like the whole like leg butt armor that she puts on at the end to like help her mediate um, you know him riding her and her having control over herself because it just it looked wonky it felt wonky it felt too I get it because it's like, like I love techno mystic syncretism and like putting on a breastplate that has a power button that lets you, like, mediate between the spirit world and the the physical world is, like, exactly up my alley. But it just made me think of, like, the weird David Lynch Dune weirding way gun, which didn't work at all, and this felt the same way. Um, But you putting in that context of her navigating her familial expectations versus the world she inhabits sort of puts that... That like legba armor, as I described it in my notes uh, in context,
1: yeah, I think that the I think that the ending of the movie is about her reconciling her ancestral heritage with her modern situation like she she is accepting her heritage, but she's doing it in her way in a way that she um... I,
0: yeah sorry I, sorry i I I'm literally thinking this through as as you're talking, so sure. I'll let you finish and then I will.
1: Oh, I was just gonna say, I, I think it's representative of her doing, um, her accepting her family history, but on her terms. Mm-hmm. Like she's not just going to let Papa Legba. Like, um, ride her. Yeah, take over. Which. I did have a problem with the very sexual phrasing of that whole situation.
0: I mean, that's, that's, Um, that's traditional, like, uh, voodoo phrasing, though. Like, the, the, the priests in voodoo let the, the ride them.
1: Oh, okay, so, then the problem is me, and that's how, okay. Right, like,
0: that's, that, that that is a, like, that, that, so, so first off, I love elwa stories. Um, Those are the spirits, uh, Legbound, all the rest of it. Um, Sorry for all the fireworks noises happening in the background, if you can hear them. Um, I'm like,
1: sorry.
0: <laughs> uh, like, give me a. Uh, this reminded me in ways of a, uh, there's a William Gibson book from 20, 2007 called Spook Country, which had a, a character who is a, a, a follower of the Santeria religion, um, and also lets like various Elwa ride them, um, and it's it's a religion and an idea that I am very interested in. And I love seeing it portrayed in this way. So, when the movie began and we're talking about uh, Papa Legba and Mama Asha, I'm like, awesome, A plus. Let's see what this goes. Um, but on the other hand, hearing you talk about um, how how you liked at the end, how she was able to like navigate that difference between her her familial expectations from her grandmother and like and, and also like the trauma of seeing her mother like fail. Uh, at the same task that she is now put on, Um, and the life that she is living, I would have... There was a part in the middle where it seemed like she was, like, when she was talking to Papa Legba and was, like, forming a a connection with him, that I wish that that was how the mediation happened, and it wasn't through a piece of, like, techno armor. That's fair. Um, Because it felt like she, especially with the fact that they have um, Papa Legba and an old... A family friend of hers or something someone who she knows in the community cast as the same actor um uh-huh. it felt very much like it was trying to be like i thought it was going as a like through this mediator she learns to like open herself to papa legba and like you know on her own terms let him ride her and it's like that would have been a really cool story in my mind um and that's kind of what happens except for it's mediated by like techno armor which again execution did not work for me
1: um
0: i i was telling you offline i love so many of the concepts happening in this movie but like it and you can tell the director has like an interesting visual eye there were some interesting visual moments in it but it's shot in a shoestring budget and the so many of the arcs and character developments feel like you know d-list cw shows um that a uh, fascinating idea. Execution didn't pull it off. And I'm not sure if I'm faulting anyone for that, just because they're working with the uh, the materials at hand.
1: Yeah, I do think that on a... So, if on a, a technical level, we don't think that the movie quite had the resources to get to its ambitions, I appreciated that it had ambitions. Yes. Um, I thought that the costuming and the makeup were great. <laughs>
0: Yes, I loved how the Elwa looked. Um, even Mama Ashe, who at first I was just like, mm. uh, but by the end I'm like, okay, I can get this. Um, you're basically a uh, Ava DuVernay's Oprah in Wrinkle in Time uh, yes. on, a, on a lower budget. <laughs> yes. Please see our sister episode, Love Ya's, last episode, uh, uh, where Martha and my wife Mara talked about A Wrinkle in Time.
1: True. I liked it more than she did. But I yep. knew I was going to like it. I'd seen it before. <laughs> right. There's just something about Oprah telling me earnestly that every coincidence in the universe, like, came together and made me and I'm perfect just the way I am that just has me on the floor. So you I know-, know Dr. Manhattan could never.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know that this is not what this episode is about, but as I was re-watching that scene as Martin was watching it, I was just like, hmm, like that Dr. Manhattan scene in Watchmen. Interesting.
1: Okay. So, <laughs> so hold up, just a moment. All right. Checking a date. All right. So, *A Wrinkle in Time* was written in 1962. Mm-hmm. And *Watchmen* was published in 1986.
0: Oh, uh, I think it was even later Doc than that. Manhattan, 86
1: to 87. Okay. Doc Manhattan could never. <laughs> I just had to verify. <laughs> no, I mean,
0: I, I I could have told you that A Wrinkle in Time was before Watchmen. Like that was from like, the book feels very sixties in a, in a way that I'm not holding against. Um, because I also love A Wrinkle in Time, the book. uh Welcome to Did You Do Your Homework? A, a Wrinkle in Time podcast.
1: <laughs> We're going so long. <laughs> well. Um, but it was important to me that we talk about a piece that visualized the Afro-future aesthetic. Um, and, and this didn't... You know, know, maybe in... Sorry, Black did... Panther may have been a better choice for the subject of this episode because it draws on so much existing um, like so many different... And I, I am using African right now as a collective term for all of the individual cultures yeah. that... Big old
0: scare quotes around... Uh... Yes, because
1: yeah. I know that that was a that was a criticism, and it is a valid one that white people tend to use African as a, a collective term. And in this particular moment, I know that. Um, oh God!
0: Like I mean, in, in the one Ryan hand, Black or, Panther, Black Panther's like Green Tribe is like kind of based on Igbo people, but also right, like it's Ryan all a blend.
1: Brian Coogler is very intentionally drawing from multiple peoples and cultures in africa and i don't know all of the specific individual influences but um they are there they are specific they are deliberate um in a way that brown girl dreaming i think draws very heavily on an afro-caribbean visual aesthetic for certain for certain characters um but a lot of it is also just kind of generically not generically but vaguely future and poor people i mean yeah it's
0: it's very street aesthetic um there's a a quote that was bouncing around my mind a lot while watching this movie which um legitimately was only bouncing around my mind a lot because i had read the black to the future article which was our academic grounding um Uh and it is a, a william gibson line that the street finds its own uses for things um and that felt very resonant with Brown Girl Begins, where it's like, yeah, these are like it's it's a Afro Caribbean Voodoo tradition, um, but also in the very in the the ritual scenes there are it's predominantly black people, but also there are white people, um, because it's at this point it's just the urban poor, uh, the people locked out of the city itself, um, so, uh, and and like you know the uh, uh her grandmother has shell necklaces and all the rest, but she also looks incredibly punk um and and like the the shells just double down on that punkness um she she looks punk uh tijan looks punk um so it's a it's very much a sort of like melange of of culture of, of cultural tradition because because that's like you know that's the street culture
1: uh-huh. So what do we as white people get out of absorbing this kind of media?
0: All right. So you're setting me up to answer a question that we want to come to at some point. Um, I I think that there is a... Afrofuturism is two-pronged in some ways, and I am not certain that I like what I'm about to say, but I still think it's true. I think that on the one hand it helps white folks grapple with the black experience in a way that they otherwise wouldn't um because you know if you if you have an alien as the the outsider enemy and a human uh as the the protagonist as in Dawn then um any human can can side with that and then you know if you're if that becomes a metaphor for like a a, a slave experience or something then that's a way to sort of um present that in a way that allows white people to to grapple with it and grok it. On the other hand, that puts afrofuturism within a white lens, where it is for white people, which I don't think it is. I think it is a a, um a genre that anyone can engage with and should and get a lot out of, but at its heart, it is,, uh, uh, black artists and authors telling stories about themselves and for themselves that are not told otherwise and would not be told otherwise um so like that in and of itself is of absolutely critical importance uh so there's that there's that tension of like it is both useful for for white folks to consume but it's not for white folks to consume like it, it's it, it is not created for that purpose
1: yeah I agree with you, and I think that it it is really telling that um much of afrofuturism, despite being absolutely not created for white consumption, does end up becoming um like popular in a very widespread way
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so you- it is it is resonant it is universally resonant while not being crafted for universality which I find fascinating.
0: You had a great point before we started recording about Black Panther, where it is both like, it is a Disney Marvel film, so it's made for uh, literally everyone because their number one overriding purpose is to make all of the money in the world. Um, But it's also an incredibly black film, and it is like...
1: It is pretty shocking to me that Coogler clearly got to make the movie that he wanted to make. Yeah. Like, I am glad for it, but Disney has yoked so many other creators yeah. that I, I don't know what stars aligned for Cooler to be able to be like, no, I'm going to make this for black people.
0: Right. And like, and, and it's like, I mean, again, we, we have talked about this frequently on this podcast. Um, it turns out that if you make a movie for black people, other people love it, too. And you can make sure. buku bucks off of it. So like, maybe do more of that hollywood which no longer exists <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> but like i i but like like regardless like the the over like the narrative unfortunately and which we're not surprised about is that like well there's mainstream culture i'm putting up scare quotes here and that means white people and then there's other things which means not white people um but if you make something for not white people white people will also enjoy it um if it's done well um
1: or even if it's not. Well,
0: yeah, that that that's fair. But like, I mean, it,
1: how much mediocre white people crap do we choke down on a yearly basis? Well, sure,
0: but that's because that's what's being given to us. But like, yeah, I, first off, yeah, fair point, great point. Um, but now, have I entirely lost the thread of my thought? That would suck. Sorry. <laughs> um. Yeah, I've entirely lost the thread on that thought.
1: The point is. If you have ever dismissed a movie because the, the cast was predominantly black, mm. congratulations, you might be a racist. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've entirely lost my train of thought on this one. I'm trying to figure out Disney uh, making all the money, but I, I can't. Um, and looking at, at our discussion document and, and this arc of conversation overall, this feels like a pretty good place to wrap up. Um so do you have any any closing thoughts?
1: There's a lot of like there are a lot of really great um movies available on streaming, particularly on Hulu right now, that fall into this umbrella. Um, this is where we watch Brown Girl Begins. You can also watch Fast Color, which is a fabulous superhero movie about three generations of black women who have different various super abilities that they're trying to keep hidden from people. Oh, Um, A Wrinkle in Time is on Disney Plus now. It's better than you were told that it was if you didn't go see it in the theater. Um,
0: I have... Wrinkle in Time is a fascinating movie. I'm not going to detract from it. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. I love the book and I have different opinions than Martha on the movie, but I don't dislike the movie. It is is better than you were told it was.
1: I love the book. The book was formative for me. Same. Um, Hard same the movie made me feel a lot of feelings hmm. and they were all good. Well, I mean, they were all strong.
0: You uh, honestly, uh, I should have been a guest on the love you episode with, uh, <laughs> about that movie. Except for then, I, then you and I would have dominated the conversation and more than not have had a, a Word in edgewise. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and read N.K. Jemison. She rules.
0: Totally read N.K. Jemison. Um, I guess my, my final thoughts on this are the article we read uh, academically was fascinating because it was from 1993 uh, and was very much, or 1994, and was very much a piece of that time. Since then, I think there has been a much, I hesitate to say explosion, but there has been a much larger creation of um, Afrofuturist stories music movies books comics especially um like this came out i think before static shock came out in comic world and like that's a huge you know Afrofuturist kind of character um comics are really a nice breeding ground right now for Afrofuturist ideas um so continue to explore them and grapple with them because they're like you know as black panther is a good example they're creating Clearly some of the best stuff in in comics and in movies right now. So, carry on with that. And also digging into and grappling with serious ideas. Uh, So, with that, we are going to wrap up for this episode. Um, Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere else Find podcasts are found please rate and review us that's how we get more viewers and subscribers as always one of your homework assignments is to share this with your friends because that's how we do um you can uh, follow us on twitter and or at us at uh d-y-d-y-h podcast let us know what you thought about this episode or uh, any ideas for future episodes uh you can also find us on facebook at did you do your homework just or did you do your homework uh and you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico 3000, P-I-K-O 3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture and, you know, uh, staring into the abyss as it stares back at me because uh, it's Twitter. Martha, how about you?
1: Find me at Magical Martha on places. It's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and how about the other podcasts you do?
1: I do a podcast with uh, Pete's Wife Marin called Love Ya, where we watch uh, largely teen, although sometimes just general rom-coms, and then talk about them. It releases on alternating weeks to this podcast on the same feed. Mm -hmm. Don't even have to go somewhere different for it. Right.
0: Uh, Last episode was um, A Wrinkle in Time. Next episode?
1: Uh, Next episode, we're watching Palm Springs, the new Andy Samberg vehicle, also on Hulu.
0: Yeah. Uh, great movie. Had a lot of fun.
1: I loved it too. Um, Spoiler alert.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I literally just realized what I was going to bring up earlier when you were talking about watching things on Hulu with Afrofuturism. Uh, it's not Futurism, but Lovecraft Country is coming out soon.
1: I'm so excited. Which ties
0: actually, back to your uh, Cthulhu. I mean,
1: I think that counts. Because it's spec fic.
0: It's not future fic, though. It's past fic, isn't it? Well, I guess like. Lovecraft is Con- Lovecraft modern the, fic
1: The boundary between that And definitions that I have seen For the purposes of Afrofuturism like, Is, is fuzzy. fuzzy Yeah, Like I honestly think That there's a case to be made that Hamilton is Afrofuturistic I, I was Although like, I think that's like A whole other Podcast While I was
0: watching The Five Bloods I'm like this is not futurist In any way but like it ties in Kind of to our topic Um mm-hmm and did it with Hamilton, and did it with um, Lovecraft Country coming out, so. For our next episode, we're going to be looking back at the year 2020 in pop culture so far. Uh, We're a little bit more than halfway through the year. It'll be the end of July when that episode comes out, and that's just a good time as any to do a retrospective for what has been a truly wild year. Uh, So that is going to be in two weeks, and until then, class dismissed.
1: Uh, My Skype says 145.
0: I'm also looking at 145 on GarageBand, so (laughs) that's gonna get cut down. But this is way over an hour. Um, Yes, I know. That's fine. No, that's fine. I'm not gonna cut like good content that we're talking. Um, Good content. (laughs) (laughs) uh, This is gonna go down to 120. I bet it's gonna be its final.